We'll hear argument first this morning, number 92-1450, Cynthia Waters versus Cheryl Churchill. Uh, Mr. Manson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In this case, the Court of Appeals held that public officials risk substantial liability if they terminate employees based on believable reports of insubordinate remarks, substantiated by two other people, witnesses to the conversation in question, if other witnesses later come forward and convince a jury that the employee actually spoke on matters of concern to the public. Although it, ex- although it expressly rejected Churchill's claim of a right to due process under the First Amendment, the Court of Appeals nevertheless held that an employer unaware of protected speech because of an inadequate investigation may be held liable for retaliatory retaliatory discharge regardless of what the employer knew at the time of the termination and even if its lack of knowledge was accidental. This unprecedented holding conflicts with this court's requirement that protected speech be a substantial or motivating factor in the termination decision for a constitutional violation to be found. There is no evidence in this case, none at all, that defendants ever were informed that Cheryl Churchill had discussed issues of public concern on January 16, 1987, with the cross trainee in that department, Melanie Perkins Graham. Thus, the defendants could not have intended to retaliate against Churchill for her allegedly protected speech when they made the decision to terminate her employment. Mr. Manson, do you mean no evidence on the record as it now stands? Assuming that you prevail on the question you're now arguing, it doesn't follow that you get summary judgment, do you? Because wouldn't it be open to the plaintiff then to show that, indeed, the relevant officers did know? Your Honor, I'm sorry. Your Honor, we believe that under the Celotex case and the rules of Rule 56E on summary judgment, that when the moving party moves for summary judgment and the burden of proof for a particular issue is on the non-moving party, it is incumbent upon the non-moving party to present evidence that would sustain a jury verdict in that party's favor. And so what has happened here, we have moved for summary judgment. We have said that all the reports of protected speech that we, I'm sorry, all the reports of speech we heard about that conversation on January 16 related to personal grievances and that there is no evidence to the contrary. In fact, Your Honor, in the district court, respondent conceded and said that they had no doubt that the report submitted by Mary Lou Ballew, who was the employee that overheard the conversation, and Melanie Perkins Graham, who was a cross-trainee to which Churchill spoke that evening, the respondent had no doubt that those reports to the first-level supervisor, Cindy Waters, and the director of nursing, Kathy Davis, could be construed in such a fashion, that is, as unprotected speech. That citation is on page 29 of our brief. Could be construed, but not had to be construed. That is correct, Your Honor, but the burden on the respondent in this case is to present evidence to the court that could sustain a jury verdict in her favor pursuant to Rule 56E and the Celotex case. There must be evidence. 
Well, doesn't she have her own evidence of what she said, and wasn't there anyone else? Uh, was it only those two people? And weren't there preceding events from which one might infer that that speech concern was a matter on a matter of public concern? Your Honor, with regard to the speech that night, yes, Cheryl Churchill does have her version of what she said. But our contention here is that for there to be a violation of the First Amendment, the defendants must be motivated by knowing a protected speech. And our argument here is that all the defendants knew about was comments of personal matters, grievances against the supervisor. And you say there's no credibility issue at all involved in that, that it's, that it's open and shut, that all that the defendants knew about was that she was grousing? That is correct, Your Honor. Uh, the uh, person that overheard the speech has been deposed several times. She gave reports at the time. Uh, there are notes of those reports. And what we contend is that defendants cannot be motivated against public speech if they don't know about it. And all they knew about was unprotected speech. Let me give you an example of what they were told. First of all, the employee that overheard the speech said that Churchill had talked to the cross-trainee about the problems in the department to the point where the cross-trainee wasn't interested in working there anymore. This is sabotage of the employer's training efforts in an understaffed department to try and get additional people trained there. The witness was then asked, and what impelled you to make that report? And Mary Lou Ballou, the employee that overheard the conversation, said, I thought that the OB department was a good place to work, and I hated to see people who wanted to work there being turned off by it. She then was asked, why did you think she needed to know that, meaning the uh, supervisor to whom she reported the speech? And she said, I thought it had a detrimental effect on the department. I thought it had foiled the attempt to get somebody in the, in the department that could help with staffing. That's what impelled this employee who overheard the conversation to go to her supervisors. Then we turn to the employee herself, the cross-trainee that was the subject of this speech. She said that the overall message was not a positive one as far as Cheryl Churchill's relationship with her immediate supervisor, Cindy Waters. She said at her deposition that the general gist of the conversation was negative feelings between Cheryl Churchill and her immediate supervisor, Cindy Waters. She said in the, in the, it's reflected in the notes of her conversation with Kathy Davis, the director of the uh, nursing area, and Cindy Waters, the director of that unit, that she recognized at the end of that conversation, she said, I know that the hospital cannot tolerate this kind of ne negative attitude. So we had, we had these reports from both the cross-trainee to which Cheryl Churchill spoke, and we had the report of the employee that overheard the conversation, an employee working in an understaffed department of the hospital who perhaps because it's understaffed has to take more on call or work weekends. And we had those reports, and that is the only information that could possibly How motivate the employee. How did those reports were inaccurate? If the reports were inaccurate, Your Honor, we still believe that under the Connick now, case... How did it... How did it... What was the basis on which the employer learned more later? The employer did not learn more later, Your Honor, until this lawsuit was filed. Cheryl Churchill was confronted when she was terminated by Cindy Waters 
and Kathy Davis with the fact that she was being terminated for general insubordination and for a conversation with a cross trainee on the evening shift for 15 or 20 minutes. She did not respond at that time. When I asked, she responded at the uh, grievance hearing, and she wasn't allowed to put in her evidence. Your Honor, I do not believe that that is what the report of that conversation by Cheryl Churchill herself, in her own uh, notes, reflects of that meeting. Mr. Hopper started that meeting off by saying, I would like to talk about three things. First of all, the warning you received in August for insubordinate uh, action. Secondly, the evaluation that you received in January where there were comments about her insubordination. And third, about the conversation with the cross trainee. Cheryl Churchill did not avail herself of that opportunity, but instead wanted to tell Hopper what was wrong with a nursing unit of the hospital. And so we contend again. If she had been allowed to do that, isn't it likely that it would have come out that that was in fact part of the substance of the conversation that uh, that was that is at issue here? It is possible, Your Honor, that if in effect the defendants had forced her to give her version of the events, that might have happened. Well, it's possible that if she had allowed to 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 discuss the subject that she wanted to discuss, that it would have come out too, isn't it? I suppose it is possible, Your Honor, but we would, we would submit that even in that event, the hospital could still lawfully have terminated this employee. But is, is your theory that good faith is an absolute defense? Your Honor, our theory is that in order for there to be a First Amendment violation, um, the employer's action must be motivated by protected speech. So it's not really good faith. It's Suppose the employer has a rule that you have to have a permit before you hold a meeting in the cafeteria. And the employee holds a meeting in the cafeteria to talk about a matter of public concern. And the employer fires the person because they didn't have a permit. But the employer is wrong. They did have a permit. What result? I think if the, uh, first of all, Your Honor, I think that deals more clearly with the prior restraint rulings of this court in terms of an overbroad rule, and if the rule is overbroad. No, assume it's a valid time, place, and manner rule. You have to have a permit before you meet in the cafeteria. That's a valid rule. We so believe. assume it is. Your Honor, we would submit that uh, whatever the result in that case, and, and I'm not sure, but that, that the, the effect here is that under Mount Healthy, the, the employer has to know that there were, and has to be act, acting on the basis of protected speech for there to be a violation of the First Amendment. Well, under, under my theory, the, under my hypothetical, the employer acts under a mistaken uh, assumption of fact. In fact, the employee was engaging in protected speech. We would say to that, Your Honor, that that would not be a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, I think so. That, that has to be your answer, that that, that employer is, is guilty of a wrongful firing, and it'd be a wrongful firing of somebody who wanted to have a, a meeting uh, with a proper permit for, for, a, for a matter of public interest, just, it, just as it would be a wrongful firing of somebody who wanted to have a meeting on a different subject. But you, you have to take the position, it seems to me, that uh, it's no First Amendment violation. It's just a wrongful dismissal. But that, that is correct, Your Honor. Mr. Manson, you, you've spoken several times, as you did in your brief, about the need to prove that the in effect, the, 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 the motivation of the employer uh, was uh, retaliation against protected speech. Now, our cases have gone into motivation when the, when the issue has been was the, was the uh, reason for the discharge something that was unprotected as opposed uh, to a, a response to that which was protected. But have we ever held uh, that retaliation uh, is in fact and across the board, a retaliation for protected speech is in fact 
uh, a, uh, a requirement uh, for, for liability? I believe, Your Honor, that's what the Connick versus Myers case stands for, that uh, the speech in that, in that case was not protected speech, and so it was deemed that it was not a violation of the First Amendment. Another case, although it goes the other way, would be uh, Rankin versus Mac McPherson, where the employee was clearly engaged in protected speech, talking about the CETA program, food stamps, Medicaid. And this was on the day that President Reagan was shot. And in the middle of that conversation, the employee says, if they go for again, him again, I hope that they get him. Now, in that case, the court can agree or not agree as to whether that particular item of speech is protected or not. But I think that the issue in that case, as I understand you, as, as, as you have just phrased it, uh, is whether, in fact, the, the impetus for the employer's action was the protected speech or the remarks about the success of the assassination attempt. Uh, but it doesn't follow from that when the contest in the case is between what was the cause. Uh, it doesn't follow from that that we have, have pronounced an across-the-board rule that retaliation against protected speech, in other words, an intent test as opposed to an effects test, uh, is always going to be the test here. And I'm, I'm not sure that we have a case that does hold that. I believe, Your Honor, that that is the, the holding of Mount Healthy and, uh, and Connick. I believe it, it comes from the Arlington wasn't Mount, Heights. Wasn't Mount Healthy a dual motivation case? It was, Your Honor. Mount Healthy was the second prong. We're arguing the first prong here, and that is we don't even get to the but no, for my, my question is do we have cases uh, that discuss the first prong as, as, an, as a requirement totally independent of the issue that arises with the second. And, and uh, I mean, for example, we've, to, to counter it, as recently as Simon and Schuster were talking about an effects test. We said, we don't care what the motivation uh, was here. Uh, it's the effect that we're concerned with. And it strikes me as odd that we would have an entirely different standard in the context that you're dealing with. Mr. Manson, I understood you to say what you're talking about is the mistake as to the content of the speech. If the employer was right about the content of the speech, that it didn't contain anything, any matter of political concerns, it's not, are you talking about motive at all in that respect? You're talking about a mistake as to the, the words that were spoken. We are not talking about a mistake as to the words that are spoken. We, what we are talking about here, Your Honor, is I that thought you were. I thought that, the, that you were relying on, on uh, statements that what was said was grousing and what was said was not on a matter of public concern. That is correct, Your Honor. That is what was reported to us. That's different from taking the same speech and saying what was the motive for it or what was the effect of it. We're looking at, as I understand it, two separate versions of what happened. One person said, I heard grousing, and the other person is saying, I spoke about matters of public concern. I thought that's what was, what was the nature of your case. Yes, Your Honor, that's exactly right. And what we say is, no matter what version of the speech Cheryl Churchill says, and even if that version were protected, and we contend that she did admit talking about her evaluation. She did admit talking about her supervisor. She did. But what we say is that even if you take her version, Cheryl Churchill cannot contest the fact 
that this, these other reports were given to us, and those are totally insubordinate, unprotected speech. And the employer, knowing only of the insubordinate speech and having no reports, after talking to the employee that overheard it three times, after talking to the employee that received the speech, the employer can only act on the basis of what it knows. And, the, and it is unrefuted in this case that the only evidence the defendants had was the information that uh, that was given to them in these reports. Is it perfectly clear that some of that uh, information in the, that they knew about had no relationship to matters of public concern, like a statement that uh, one of the, the nurses was ruining the hospital, and and I forget there are two or three things that arguably raise questions might might have some public interest. In. We believe, Your Honor, that in the context of what the 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 uh, information I read before about the impact that this speech made on the others. You described the impact by describing what one of the witnesses said was going to happen to personnel, but I, there's no evidence that, that that really happened. I believe, Your Honor, that the disruption in this case was that the employee that, o that actually overheard the speech was, was upset about it. She is there to help train cross-trainees as well, and she sees her co-employee undermining not only the efforts of the hospital, but her own efforts to get additional people in to help staff there really isn't any evidence he had any staffing problems, was there? Yes, Your Honor. That is not contested by either side here. There were uh, significant staffing problems. Your Honor, I'd like to reserve uh, the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Manson. Uh, Mr. Seaman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The United States supports petitioners on both the First Amendment issue and the qualified immunity issue in this case. On the First Amendment issue, we think that the Court of Appeals was wrong when it held that it is irrelevant whether the petitioners knew at the time of Nurse Churchill's discharge that she had engaged in protected speech, i.e. speech on a matter of public concern. That holding is wrong because under this Court's decision in Mount Healthy, an employee must show both that she engaged in protected speech and that she was fired because of the fact that she engaged in protected speech. If the hospital did not know that she had engaged in protected speech, it could not have been motivated by that fact. Mount Healthy was a case in which the contest was a contest as between motivations, wasn't it? Yes, Mount Healthy was uh, most accurately characterized as a, as a mixed motive case. And uh, we think it's correct to say that the court has never directly addressed the question presented here, whether motive is an across-the-board requirement in retaliatory discharge cases. I don't understand uh, that. Why, why would mixed motive make a difference if motive doesn't make a difference? Well, the, and it, it's exactly in this respect that we think the Court of Appeals was wrong. We think that motive is highly relevant, in fact, that it's a necessary element. And I don't understand why your response isn't not healthy still, mixed motive or not. Is right on point. That that why would mixed motive make a difference if what your real motive is doesn't make a difference? Motive clearly is relevant, and, and Mount Healthy establishes that much. Uh, well, couldn't couldn't it make a difference if in fact uh, there there would be a compete there there was a competing justification, and the question is whether that justification was the operative one as opposed to a justification of retaliation against protected speech. Yes, and, and that, that was the focus of the court's concern in Mount Healthy. Um, and, and that gave rise to the sort of two-part um, showing that has to be made and, and the affirmative defense that's available to the employer. But what I, st I, still, don't I still don't understand that. It, it, it seems to me the inquiry in Mount Healthy was whether the motive for firing was the unlawful motive. 
That's right. And the assertion was, well, there may have been mixed motives. And, and, but still, doesn't it assume that you have to prove the bad motive? Yes, I, th I think that's exactly correct to say that Mount Healthy, the assumption in Mount Healthy is that motive is relevant and, in fact, that it's an element of the plaintiff's yes, but proof. Yes, the, but the, there there was an, something independent of the speech. I can't remember what it was, but wasn't it true that, that the thought was even if the, bad, the, the protected speech had not been made, she would have been fired anyway? Isn't that, is that right? That was the defense. That's it correct. It had a bad personnel right. Here, there's no question about the fact that she was fired because she made a particular group of statements on a particular date which they didn't realize were protected as the defense. But she was clearly fired because she made a particular speech which they say was protected. It, it, it may be more accurate to say that she was fired based on the reports of, of what she had said. And in, in that sense, the speech formed the well, basis. Well, but it's, the speech is the, is, is, was the basis for the discharge. That's correct. But isn't this case different from Mount Healthy in the, the question is what was the speech? Now, whether person was fired for what was the speech or was fired for a different reason, a different question from what was the speech. Here, the employer thinks the speech is one thing when the employer acts, but it turns out to be something else. I thought that's what this case was and that, th that such a case has not been seen. That is what this case is about. The employer made a mistake of fact about the content of the speech. And the question if, is... And if the employer was right about what the speech was... There wouldn't be any First Amendment argument to make. That's right. If the Only because the employer thought this, the words were one thing when, in fact, it appears they may have been something quite different. Exactly. And that particular fact situation wasn't before the court in Mount Healthy. Uh, but we believe that Justice Scalia is correct to characterize Mount Healthy as proceeding on the assumption that motive is, is not only relevant, but that it's a, a necessary um, uh, element of the plaintiff's burden of proof. I had a, a question that I think you could be very helpful with. It. If you had a situation like this in federal employment, uh, how would the employee put forward that claim? The situation in, in federal employment is generally that uh, whether the employee is a probationary employee or a non-probationary employee, she would have the opportunity to uh, get notice of the reason why she was being discharged and in certain circumstances an opportunity to respond. Uh, the, the procedural safeguards are, are somewhat more attenuated for uh, a probationary employee, but certainly for a... A non-probationary employee, apart from the administrative process, would there be any judicial review? Yes, the, the employee would first go to the agency and, and uh, then to the Merit Systems Protection Board and the decision of the board would be reviewable in the federal circuit. And, in fact, in federal employment cases, uh, retaliatory discharge claims come up um, frequently, and the federal circuit rules on those. Could you come directly to court, skip over that? We would argue no, that, in fact, the employee has a duty to exhaust his or her administrative remedies first, and those remedies provide for notice of the reason why you're being discharged, an opportunity to respond to those um, to those charges in writing, and then an opportunity for a hearing before the MSPB, that is de novo. Do any of these matters uh, go through a, a collectively bargained arrangement? Yes. There is, in, in some situations where the issue is covered by a collective bargaining agreement, there's an opportunity for, for arbitration. 
And in fact, it, it may be that ultimately it's the arbitrator's decision that goes to the Federal Circuit for review Mr. Um, rather Seaman, than the board. Uh, your time is about to expire, and I did want to ask a question, please. Um, the district court said that even if the part of the conversation was protected, there was another part that was inherently disruptive That's by right. any version of the facts, and therefore the firing was justified on that basis. The Court of Appeals disagreed with that. Is there a sufficient uh, factual basis um, to grant summary judgment one way or another we on think that? that? We think that summary judgment was appropriate, and that's because there was no dispute about what the employer, what the hospital knew, and, and why it fired Nurse Churchill. Regardless of what the content of the speech was, as it heard the speech, it was insubordinate conversation on a matter of personal concern, and it was motivated by its belief of, of, of those reports to fire her. And because we don't think that there is a, a genuine issue of, of disputed fact on that, that summary judgment was appropriate. The district court um, did determine that there was a dispute about the content of the speech, but that, that is no longer a dispute. The petitioners are conceding for purposes of, of this uh, decision that she spoke on a matter of public concern, in other words, on the cross-training policy. Is it, is it not possible for speech to be insubordinate even though it deals with a subject of uh, public concern? Must a, a hospital allow all of its... Uh, uh uh, personnel, in particular supervisory personnel, to go around and tell uh, uh, subordinate employees this is the worst hospital in the world. Uh, do, do, must, must that be allowed? It certainly should not, in our view. Um, in fact, especially if that kind of conversation was directed um, at patients coming into the hospital, we think it would have an enormous disruptive effect, um, even if it was on a matter of public concern. And as we understand Pickering, a court can take that into account and say, even if the speech was concerned a matter of public interest, nonetheless, the discharge uh, was still justified. Is that a question, mixed question of fact and law? What is that question? Whether it's justified as inherently disruptive? I think that would probably be a mixed question. Uh, the, the, it would be a question of fact uh, to the extent that it would implicate the what effect uh, speech actually had on the workplace, and there may be disputes about exactly what the disruptive effect was. Ultimately, it would be a question of law. Um, I'd like to spend just a moment speaking about the question of whether an effects test of the sort that's been suggested in some of this Court's decisions should apply here. And we say no because of the distinct context in which this case uh, has arisen. The Court has made it clear since Pickering that when the government acts as an employer, it has interests in regulating employee speech that differ significantly from those that it possesses in connection with regulating the speech of the citizenry in general. And in that context, the court made clear that in an employment-at-will situation like this one, the government can discharge an employee for any reason or no reason at all as long as it is not motivated by a desire to retaliate against the employee for engaging in protected speech. I thank the court. Thank you, Mr. Seaman. Uh, Mr. Bisbee, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I'd like to say one thing by way of introduction, if I may, please. Uh, this case, more than any case decided since Pickering by this Court, uh, presents public employee speech in the context in which I think, although I've done no empirical study on the matter, in which I think public employee speech is most apt to take place. That is, speech during a break time, a break period, 
dinner hour or whatever when employees in a public agency talk about the policies of the uh, of the public employer, talk about the policies of the agency itself, talk about how the policies of the employer are uh, conforming to or in furtherance of or sustaining the mission of whatever the agency may be. So you have here a very vital public agency. You have a public hospital. And you have a situation where for six months there has been a dispute ongoing between the professional nursing and medical staffs on a, on, a, on a nurse staffing device known as cross-training, disregarding the merits of... Mr. Bradley, I wish you would uh, turn to the question presented, which is that the understanding of the employer at the time of the action, the employer's understanding, according to the question presented in the cert petition, was that the, there was, the speech that was involved was unprotected, insubordinate speech. So the question is, at that time, the time of the firing, the employer believes that the words spoken were unprotected, insubordinate speech doesn't find out till later, the First Amendment protected cat. That's the question presented. Who, who phrased that question? The petitioners raised that question, Your Honor, you and that question is not supported by the record. Isn't that what the, the question... Isn't that what the Seventh Circuit treated the question as being? No, it did not. What, what question did the second, Seventh Circuit address? The Seventh Circuit basically addressed the question whether or not, on the facts of the case, summary judgment was warranted uh, to the petitioners in light of what the record showed and in light of what was reasonably available to the hospital. And what was reasonably available to the hospital, Your Honor, is very explicit in this record. The Seventh Circuit said it didn't matter that the employer didn't know that the words spoken were protected speech. Didn't the Seventh Circuit... Your Honor, the problem with the Seventh Circuit's opinion, to the extent that there is one, is that after doing a very careful uh, analysis of the historical context into which this dispute arose, then made somewhat of a leap without perhaps the appropriate link in the bridge, and then did say that it doesn't matter what the employer knew so long as it knew it was well, dealing it with speech. Well, it said we hold that ignorance of the nature of the employee's speech is inadequate to insulate officials from a 19... But, Your Honor, I think that unfairly characterizes... ...that the employer didn't know that the words spoken were protected speech. Didn't the Seventh Circuit... Your Honor, the problem with the Seventh Circuit's opinion, to the extent that there is one, is that after doing a very careful... Uh, analysis of the historical context into which this dispute arose, then made somewhat of a leap without perhaps the appropriate link in the bridge, and then did say that it doesn't matter what the employer knew so long as it knew it was well, dealing it with said speech. We held, it said we hold that ignorance of the nature of the employee's speech is inadequate to insulate officials from a 19... But, Your Honor, I think that unfairly characterizes what the Court of Appeals did in a 26 or so page opinion in which it painstakingly, painstakingly detailed the beginning of this controversy, beginning with Dr. Cook in 1982 and the staffing problems that he, as the medical clinical director of the OB department, had with... Mr. Bisbee, uh, uh, the, to further Justice Ginsburg, when they're summarizing at the end of their opinion... They say we further hold as immaterial whether the defendants knew the precise kind of Churchill's conversation, for they knew or should have known. Uh, 
This is the language of the Court of Appeals itself. Your Honor, that is the language of the Court of Appeals. I don't think, however, you can extract that language from the opinion of the Court of Appeals. What I'm here defending is the judgment of the Court of Appeals. I think... Well, but we granted certiorari on a question presented, and you can assume that we want to hear that argument on that question. I do assume that, Your Honor, and I'm hopeful that I'm trying to address that. The record does not support that there were believable reports of substantiated, insubordinate speech. That just isn't what the record shows. Each one of the individual petitioners testified explicitly as to what it was that motivated him and her. Waters, Cynthia Waters, who was a department head in OB, was the one to whom Ballew, the eavesdropper, reported what she had overheard. And what she reported was this. She said, something bad is going on and you should be aware of it. Cheryl took a cross-trainer into the kitchen and talked about you and how bad things were in OB. That was the report. On that basis, Waters went immediately to Davis and to Hopper, and she told them what Ballew had reported. Davis and Hopper said that's got to be confirmed by talking to Melanie Perkins. Do I take it that what you're saying is you had a triable case on what that employer understood? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was the question that I was asking your adversary. Even if the Seventh Circuit is wrong, it doesn't matter that the employee believed the speech was unprotected at the time the employer acted. Would the summary judgment be appropriate? And he said you didn't come forward with anything to show that the employer understood at the time it was acting that it was dealing with protected speech. What did you come forward with at the time of summary judgment in the district court to make out a case that at the time this woman was fired, the people who fired her knew that she was dealing in protected speech? They reasonably knew that she was dealing in protected speech because what was reported, what was reported to them was basically a headline. Things were bad in OB and the administration was responsible. Kathy Davis, the vice president of nursing who implemented the cross-training program, was said reportedly to be ruining the hospital. And there were a couple of other general statements like that which, again, were in headline form only saying that things were bad in OB and the administration was harming the hospital. Mr. Bisbee, do you take the position that everything on the record that the court has before it in considering summary judgment, that all of the speech by the employee was protected? All of it was protected speech or is some of it unprotected? I take the position, Your Honor, on the record, on the basis of what the employer knew. Sixty-two percent... On the basis of the record. On the basis of the... Before the court for summary judgment. On the basis of the entire record, I take the position that virtually 90 percent of her speech was protected because she was talking about the cross-training policy. Not all of it. Well, there were some questions she answered. And in answering that question, you bear in mind the Connick case which dealt with criticism of the management of the district attorney's office, whether it was well-managed and had good morale, where the court said that was not a matter of public concern? That's correct, Your Honor, but that did not go to the delivery of the public office's public service. What we're talking about here, a nurse staffing issue which directly affects patient care goes... A portion of the speech went to that. Excuse me? A portion of the speech went to that. In this case, 
62% of what the employer knew at the time they discharged her mm-hmm. is consistent with the speech being on a matter of public concern. Let me ask you another thing. Do you think that um, even protected speech could also serve to demonstrate sufficient disruption to the employer's uh, operation that a firing could be justified? I do. I can see that. There is no evidence on the record, however, Your Honor, to support that that happened. The only way the district court came up with its inherently disruptive theory is this way. There are uh, 38 pages of Cheryl Churchill's testimony. The district court considered three of those pages. It disregarded altogether the testimony of the supervisor of the shift in question who corroborated 100% that Cheryl Churchill's speech was on this public concern issue. It disregarded altogether the the medical clinical director's testimony who was present, who was one of the conversants, who said that the speech was on this cross-training issue. It disregarded altogether the testimony that it was the cross-trainer herself who initiated the conversation. I'm not sure it disregarded that. Justice O'Connor's question is, even assuming that it was about the cross-training issue, might that not be a valid cause for discharge? Does every employee of of a public hospital have a right to go about running down the hospital to subordinates uh, simply because that employee uh, doesn't like the way the hospital is being run. And that is a public issue, and therefore it can be done constantly. Your Honor, if you're talking simply about uh, mere statements of disparagement in order to disparage for the purpose of disparaging... No, in, in the best of good faith. In the best of good well, faith. Well, if you're t- if the, to impose the Pickering factors, to pose any kind of the, the, the Pickering factors test, Your Honor, it seems to me there has got to be some reasonable basis for thinking that the speech was doing that. You had the speech, in this case, given on January 16, 1987. Four days later, without anybody knowing about it, it is brought by the eavesdropper to the attention of the supervisors. Everybody who testified said there was no disruption. The supervisor on the shift in question said there was no disruption. In fact, that she herself would have been involved in the conversation had she not finished her dinner. If she had been telling this to the, super, to the uh, board of trustees of the hospital or, or someone who had the authority to change the situation that, that she thought was bad for the public, I could understand it. But telling it to a subordinate nurse, what, what did she hope to achieve? by telling it to, uh, to uh, one of the cross-trainees, except dissatisfaction. Your Honor, this is fundamental to what the First Amendment rights all about of public employees. The whole basis of the right to engage in free speech is the right to uh, exchange ideas, the idea that truth comes out in the exchange of ideas and the competition of the market. How do you... How do you uh... Criticize the operation. So long as it's a public operation, all of the employees must be free to run down the operation to subordinate employees. Your, your Honor... Even I... though the subordinate employees can't do anything about it. Your Honor, number one, I, I disagree with your assessment that there was a subordinate employee here. There was a co-employee. It was a nurse from another floor is all. A co-employee. No authority in the operation to make the changes that, that, that she thought were necessary. Your Honor, the thing is, though, the whole idea of free speech, the whole idea of public employee speech is the refinement of knowledge. So that the, because these public employees are the ones who are possessed. That's what Pickering held. They are the ones who are possessed of how something is working. These are people exchanging notes. She stood to teach, Cheryl Churchill stood to teach the other employee what her perspective of how this uh, nurse staffing issue was working. She stood to learn from the other uh, nurse how the nurse staffing issue was working. Both stood to learn from 
Thomas Cook, the doctor, the clinical head, how the nurse staffing issue was working. These are the kinds of things that employees can talk about and then bring to the attention, perhaps, of the supervisors. That may be a justification for employee free speech, but under the balancing test, certainly some of what Justice Scalia says is relevant. To whom the speech is addressed, was, well, could this person do anything about it, that sort of thing. Your Honor, here's where, here's where, that, here's where that question leads, I, I believe, with all respect. She could have gone out and made a statement to the newspaper. She could have done, could she have, I mean, you're saying she could have gone and done the same thing, gone public with something, which may have been not fully accurate, which may have not been fully accurate because she would not have apprised herself or allowed herself the benefit of the perspective of, say, Melanie Perkins Graham. Well, yeah, a much stronger think, case for you. I'd, I'd have a lot more trouble with that firing than I would with this one. But, Your Honor, it seems to me you're overlooking the predicate, the predicate that is absolutely necessary for public employee speech to be informed. Well, counsel, is, yes. uh, do you agree that... An employer can have reasonable rules on time, place, and manner for addressing problems of public concern. Absolutely. And would you agree that one of those rules might be that you don't criticize the hospital during the middle of an operation, of a surgical operation? Uh, I agree. But that didn't happen in this case. The only, the only circumstance that happened in this case was done by Cindy Waters herself, who interrupted a surgical procedure to start ordering people out of the room when the surgical procedure was underway, being performed by a doctor, no less. And when the doctor attempted to reprimand the nurse, the Cindy Waters, for having interrupted the operation, what happened? The head of the hospital takes notes, copious notes. I couldn't have done it, but no one could do it better himself to show what a concerned doctor this is, talking about just what you said, how bad it is to interrupt operations, surgical procedures. Yes. The Seventh Circuit may have had the wrong fix on the case, but it did say twice that its holding is if the employer is ignorant of the nature of the speech, it doesn't matter. That's not insulating. And I want you to tell me, as far as that's concerned, how that can be squared with a qualified immunity, with, with the very reason for being of a qualified immunity doc, doctrine. If a person acts on the basis of credible but Ultimately, it turns out wrong information. How can such a person not have qualified immunity? It's not credible information. I disagree with that, number one. But that's number two. But number two. That's the question that cert was granted on. I understand that. an employee based on credible, substantiated reports of unprotected. I understand that, Your Honor. But from the beginning of my uh, opposition to cert, I've, I've, I've questioned that the record supports anything like that. But, but number two, your question goes directly to the point you and Justice Souter were bringing up earlier. Mount Healthy, unlike unlike any of the other cases, is a mixed speech motive. I mean, this is a mixed speech motive case, whereas Mount Healthy was a straight mixed motive case. Here you have a mixed speech motive case, which sort of ties in then with a pretext type case. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to assume that I've got the obligation to show, at least prima facie, that, they, that, they, that her speech, as reported, motivated the discharge, the retaliatory action. At the, time, at the time they acted. Yes, Your Honor. Isn't, then isn't the bottom line of your argument that we must remand to the Seventh Circuit because they said it doesn't matter, that they didn't know when they acted. Your Honor, we, I... Wouldn't we have to say, Seventh Circuit, it does matter what I, they knew when they acted. Your Honor, I don't think you... I think you can affirm the Seventh Circuit's judgment and indicate that the ground of decision has to be somewhat different because I agree with you that it is not irrelevant. 
And I, I think that you've got to understand that the Seventh Circuit was writing in the context of the historical context, directly out of Arlington Heights, directly out of Washington versus Davis. And if you think well, about... In your, in your view, what are the standards that an employer must follow in evaluating a report that there has been disruptive speech that's non-protected well, before a, the employer can terminate the employee? All right. Look at it in terms of Arlington Heights where it talks about the historical context. The standard ought to be, is their view a reasonable one? I don't say at this point there's a duty to investigate. But in this case, they talked to only those people who corroborated that it was insubordinate speech. They did nothing else. They made a conscious decision not to talk to Cheryl Churchill. Why did, how do we know it's a conscious decision? I, I want you to just confine yourself to what the legal standard ought to be. We can, we can evaluate the facts of this record. All right. If their information is reasonable, is reasonably based, objectively reasonably based, and this brings into bear, this brings to bear the, the footnote six out of Anderson versus Creighton. If it's reasonably based, based that the speech was insubordinate, I think they're entitled to take. I think that summary judgment would have been appropriate for the uh, the petitioners in this case. But that couldn't have been reasonably based in this case because what they acted on, what they acted on was consistent, fully consistent with her speech being on the protected issue of the nurse staffing problem of cross-training. Kathy Davis ruining the hospital, things bad, no B. If you look at the, at the depositions of Hopper, you look at the depositions of Davis, that's what they acted upon. Not only that, they had no reason to disbelieve, and I know I stressed that perhaps ad nauseum in the brief for which I ask your forgiveness, but nevertheless, they had no reason to disbelieve that that speech had anything, was, was on anything other than cross-training. The standard has to be an objectively reasonable one. And it's not reasonable if, in fact, there is no attempt when you're talking First Amendment. And you, you pointed out in a, in a recent dissent last term, Your Honor, that, uh, that there is the notion of some sensitive inquiry which the First Amendment by itself imposes, some inquiry as to what the circumstances were. And Connick itself says that the speech has to be viewed in terms of the whole record. What, Mr. Bisbee, do, do you know how the Seventh Circuit got this notion that what they were dealing with was an employer ignorant of the nature of the employee's speech? And how did, how, since you, you say that that's not what this case is about, how did they manage I, to think that that, that that was what before them, that you can impute to the employer what comes up after, even if you accept that at the time the employer acted, it was ignorant of what the content of the speech was? I don't accept that the employer was ignorant of what the content, the content of the speech I'm was. I'm just asking you, where, where did the Seventh Circuit get that notion from that it put in its opinion a couple of times? Well, Your Honor, far be it for me to uh, venture a guess as to how the Seventh Circuit arrived at that particular dicta, but I think that's all that it is, is dicta, because I think the holding of the Seventh Circuit is fully consistent with the very detailed historical analysis that the Seventh Circuit but you did. Never made, you never made such an argument. That it doesn't matter what they knew when they acted, it only matters what at the, after the firing. I absolutely do. I did not. I did not make that argument. What I was doing basically was showing that there were issues of fact in all respects as to the content, the context, and the form of the speech in order to uh, get around the summary judgment that had been imposed against me in the district court. I did not make that argument. It may have been my fault, Your Honor. I may have not properly given the, uh, the Seventh Circuit an analytical framework. Well, Mr. Bisbee, may I ask you this? I, I, I just don't know the answer to it. At the time the district court acted, and hence when you were describing to the circuit what the district court had before it, 
the time the district court acted, was there an affidavit or a deposition on file by Churchill saying, I was talking about nurse staffing at, in, the, in that conversation? 38 pages. She, she came out and said it explicitly. 38 okay. pages worth, explicitly. The district court considered only three of those pages. And in those three pages, the district court did not they, they considered she was being asked matters of what she did not say, not what she said. And then it went on and said that uh, Melanie Perkins Graham was more explicit. Melanie Perkins Graham, in her report, said she didn't remember exactly what was said, except that Kathy Davis was ruined in the hospital, and things were bad and OB. And the administration was responsible. The problem, as I see it, was, was adumbrated by you in an earlier question, uh, Justice Souter, to the effect that what happens under Mount Healthy, if you, if you uh, merge the Mount Healthy formula with the Anderson versus Creighton formula set forth in, the, uh, in, the, in footnote number six, that's where you come up with the notion that there's got to be some reasonable basis for the employer to believe that the speech was protected. And here, what they acted upon was fully consistent with the, with the, with the, with the six-month dispute on the cross-training. And furthermore, under Arlington Heights, if you look at how you can determine from the context or the, the sequence of events, what motivated someone, what motivated the petitioners in this case, was her free speech. For example, they disregarded their own procedures when it came to doing such things as viewing Dr. Cook's written concerns that, that, that Hopper noted. At no point after this code pink, which was the beginning of the end for Churchill, the code pink was the beginning of the end for Churchill and the attempted beginning of the end for Dr. Cook, they went and the, the three of them, Hopper, Davis, and Waters, concluded that Cook was a guy who was out of control because he had a temper, because he was angry at his, at his procedure being interrupted. Did, the, did those three individuals bring to anybody's attention that uh, he had tremendous poly, policy concerns about what was going on in OB? They did not. They instead initiated the action to uh, take away his staff privileges, and they gave Churchill a written warning for having sn simply snapped at uh, Waters when, 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 when she gave Waters a, uh, an instruction contrary to what the doctor had said. But worse than that, worse than that, at, at her year-end evaluation, and this is critical, her year-end evaluation, three weeks before she was discharged, she's given a, a, a good evaluation in all respects. These are arguments perhaps... Uh, as to what the motive of, of, the, of the hospital was, I don't think they addressed the question presented in the, in the petition for certiorari. The ultimate question in the case is whether or not there, what was the motive of the hospital, Your Honor. And the thing is, I, as I'm well, trying... Well, the, the ultimate question in the case is, so far, when we take it here, it is a question of law. That's and correct. That is, if the employer discharges for speech without knowledge that it's protected speech... Uh, is that a does that come under Mount Healthy as a violation of the First Amendment or not? Your Honor. I, you, all, all the facts you bring out, I don't think, really address that. But, Your Honor, that's the problem in this case. I don't think it, the facts posed okay. in the petitioner's but question... You, 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 you've made that point for 25 minutes. Are you going to address the, the question of law that's presented in the petition for certiorari at all? Well, I'm sorry if I haven't done that, Your Honor, but it seems to me that the court doesn't even really need to reach that question. I don't know the answer to that question exactly. If, the, if, 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 if you're talking now purely hypothetically, and unlike what I say the record shows in this case, if you're saying that an employer re, uh, re, hears substantiated reports, uh, believable, of insubordinate speech, what can it do? 
The court doesn't need to reach that decision in this case. Suppose we think we need to reach that decision. What should, what's the answer to it? Well, the uh, answer to it, Your Honor, I don't know the answer to it. I just don't know the answer to it. That is not presented in this case. We take this case to determine who said what in the cafeteria. I understand that. We determine this case to see what the rule of law ought to be if an employer acts unreasonable, substantiated information, but is wrong. Your Honor, but you see, the, and I didn't want to have the temerity to suggest that the writ had been perhaps improvidently granted, because there's a lot of effort that's involved in that. But it seems to me that the, the record simply doesn't support that question. And I know I've been arguing for 25 or maybe 27 you minutes did, now on that you point. You did so argue in the brief in opposition. Pardon me? You did so argue in the brief in Yes, Your Honor, I did. I did. I argue that. That is, just, that is simply not presented. That isn't what the record in this case shows. And I say that with uh, with with. Uh, with but it's certainly, it certainly is what the Seventh Circuit held. I mean, the Seventh Circuit has used language here that says it doesn't matter what the motive is. The Seventh Circuit used language that was broader than it needed to. The Seventh Circuit used language that, it, that was broader than the analysis and the Seventh Circuit used. And maybe we need to send it back because they, they seem to be operating on a legal theory that even you aren't here defending. That is basically correct. I don't think you have to send it back. It seems to me that you can affirm the judgment and say that the legal test employed by the Seventh Circuit was not altogether correct. I mean, I'm not arguing... I understand your theory to be that if the uh, employer acts on a premise that's factually incorrect, but is nonetheless reasonable in reaching its conclusion, that a discharge of the employee in in those circumstances is not a violation of the Constitution. That's what I've argued. If the employer is reasonable, but that takes into account the content, the context, the form of the speech, that takes into account the procedures, as you have pointed out, are necessarily implied by the First Amendment itself when speech is at issue. Sort of a negligence standard, so if, if, an employment, if an employer is negligent about finding out what the conversation was, he's guilty of a constitutional violation? Absolutely not. We're talking about objective reasonableness. If the employer's reasoning, if well, the employer's... Negligence is what a reasonable man would not do. Well, uh, I, I don't see the difference between a reasonableness standard and a, and a negligence standard. I disagree. I think the objective reasonableness standard that's been imposed by this line of, by the line of decisions in this court culminating in uh, Anderson versus Creighton and Hunter versus Bryant is... Is far different. It's a kind of it's a kind of standard which indicates that there has been an abuse of governmental power. That a reasonable governmental officer would have known that what he was doing was violating the law. That's how you phrased it in Anderson. Negligence, you huh? say. That's different from negligence. I think that you've indicated it's different from negligence. There, you're. I, that's how I've read Anderson versus Creighton, Your Honor. I've read Anderson versus Creighton as being fully consistent, fully consistent with this court's decisions in things like Daniels versus Williams, where, we, where you've held that negligence is not actionable. Well, Mr. Bisbee, what's the difference between your standard for liability and your standard for qualified immunity? You know, under the facts of this case, they come awfully close to merging. Why, why didn't they just merge in what you said? I... I I thought they did. I, that's what I was... We're talking here about a mixed speech motive case. That's why, in response to Justice Kennedy's questions, I say if the information that the, that, that, the, uh, that the employer has is reasonable, that the speech is unprotected and insubordinate, the employer is justified in discharging. But the speech... The, the, but the, there can be no reinstatement. The employee can engage in protected speech... 
It can be proven that it's protected speech, but there's no reinstatement? I didn't say that. As opposed to damages? I didn't say that. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but all I'm talking about... Can can we explore what the answer might be? Yes. Uh, Do you think there's a distinction between uh, the employer's liability for reinstatement and the employer's liability for uh, damages under 1983? I don't think so. This Monell would apply across the board as far as the city is concerned? That's also a foggy question. There's a difference between the standard for damages and the standard for... Well, uh, yes, I think the governmental governmental entity could remain liable, and the governmental entity, as the Ninth Circuit has held, would be liable for reinstatement. The individuals might be, uh, might, could could be immune uh, from money damages. Yeah, because assuming the individuals wouldn't have the authority to reinstate her, it would have to be the municipal unit. That's correct, Your Honor. Are you, are you, by the way, did you ask for reinstatement relief or just money? Both. Thank you, Mr. Bisbee. Thank you, Your uh, Honor. Mr. Manson, you have two minutes remaining. I would strongly urge this court that this matter should not be sent back on remand, but in fact that summary judgment was appropriate in this case. Uh, in response to Justice Souter's comment, we have conceded for purposes of summary judgment that Cheryl Churchill's version of what she said that night is correct, but that was not what was reported. And the test under Connick is, is that if an employer reasonably believes that an employee grievance has occurred in subordination, then the uh, employer can act to terminate the employee. In the Connick case, it is said that a public employee gets no greater First Amendment rights for a personal grievance than does a private employee. And we think that is exactly what happened in this case. Did the district court find that there was a reasonable belief on the part of the employer? Yes, it did, Your Honor. And it also found that under the p- Pickering Where, balance. It, it, it said that in, in explicitly, that the belief was reasonable? Uh, the, the district court held, Your Honor, that under either version, of the of the uh, case uh, that the point of the speech, the employee's point of the speech, because Cheryl Churchill admitted, in addition to her in in her version of speech, that she talked about non-protected items, namely her evaluation and her thoughts concerning the manager uh, of that unit. And what the employee that overheard the conversation said was that the overall message was not a positive one as far as Cheryl Churchill's relationship with Cindy Waters. She discussed the evaluation. She told me she and Cindy Waters didn't get along. Uh, Cheryl said that Cindy Waters had said that um, they should wipe the slate clean uh, in that evaluation session. And Cheryl Churchill told Cindy Waters it wasn't possible to do that. She said Cindy Waters didn't do much and that the general gist of that conversation was negative feelings between Cheryl Churchill and Cindy Waters. We contend that is not in any way protected speech, and we contend, furthermore, that under Mount Healthy, it was only these reports that motivated the employer. And I would ask this. I thank you. Thank the court. Thank you, Mr. Manson. The case is submitted.